Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. Uh, this week we're discussing Station Eleven and Don't Look Up. Two different visions uh, of the end of the world, you could say. Or two pieces of content about Himesh Patel's character having panic attacks. Also. Oh my god, yeah. I thought that was a, <laughs> I thought that was a funny uh, coincidence. But maybe it's just like our boy Himesh is, is he's rising up. Yeah, yeah. Pulling it off really well in both of these. Yeah. Um, he's he's too perfect. They have to give him something that, you know, hinders him somehow. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Happy New Year, Jenny. Oh yes. Happy New Year. Uh how have you been? How's your break been so far? It's been really good. To the point where unsurprisingly i want it to never end yes <laughs> just like so i've <laughs> i've uh i've had the luxury of having two weeks off mm. and the way my brain is just like you don't have a job <laughs> right it's amazing how so quickly just like the mind adapts to a totally open and like relaxed lifestyle yes yeah well monday aka <sighs> tomorrow will be a different story but how are you how are you doing Pelon? besides that i'm doing all, i'm doing okay i've ordered a little bit of technology into my life now so i oh. finally paid off my iphone 8 mm. and then i decided promptly that i should get a brand new iphone so Ooh. i now have an iphone 13 please don't rob me oh right if you see right. me in the street disclaimer <laughs> Uh, but I still get excited about the prospect of a new phone because I never you know I got a phone very late in my life Uh uh, as a kid I think my first phone was like a flip like a Motorola flip phone at the age of like 17 Mm. Um, and then I got my first iPhone I think like 10 years after that do you know what I mean so Mm. I still get very excited about a new iPhone I'm like trying to get used to it it's all right though but other than that I also ordered a Kindle and that's oh, sending me into a bit of an it. existential dread. Yeah, it's, it's back-ordered, so I'm still waiting for it. Mm. But this is why it's, it's, it's kind of significant for me. I am I philosophically believe that you should turn pages when you read. I mean, the tactile thing is just, it's different. It hits different. It hits different. And I don't know if I'm going to buy into it. So it's I'm kind of treating it like a trial run. Mm. I might end up selling it in like six months and going back to endless books lying around my apartment but the reason why is because like i moved house um this year in june and like just my books were too much it was just too much yeah and i'm sure i i don't know and like i like to read on on vacation too so i was like yeah. well, this will be convenient so maybe that's all i use it for yeah and or for like commutes i don't know it's yeah. just like i'm also i also thought of myself as like a physical book reader for the longest time but I'll tell you, like, having the convenience um, and also having, like, carpal tunnel, which I have flare-ups of, yeah. like, just holding a book open for hours yeah. on end, these, like, shriveled hands, like, I cannot do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how it goes. But, yeah, I've kind of turned into a bit of a technology bitch. Nice. Uh, Look so at you, fun. Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Watch out, Marky Mark. Um, I guess speaking of technology what did you watch this week helen so this week i've been watching station 11 on hbo max and listeners of this pod will know that i included it in my top five tv shows Mm. of 2021 Mm -hmm. and it was with the with the intention of talking about it later um for those that don't know what i'm talking about this is a 10 episode limited series it's based on the best-selling book by emily st john mandel uh, that I think came out in 2000, 
to 14 or 15, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been adapted by the showrunner Patrick Somerville. The main protagonist, the main star of it is Mackenzie Davis as Kirsten. And Matilda Lawler plays her younger version. There's a bunch of other people. Himesh Patel, uh, like we mentioned, is also in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, an array of actors that, uh, would you say they're like B, C list for the most part? Maybe even D list, but it they're worked definitely, out really well. Yeah, they're definitely not like, I'd say, huge household names. But no. I think a lot of them have extensive experience or they've done, or they've done character work um, yeah. or they are just like kind of more obscure. But yeah, it's... It is a it is kind of the opposite sort of cast of like Don't Look Up, which uh, yes. is just like filled to the brim. Star studded. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um oh. for those of my Mozart in the Jungle fans slash Gail Garcia Bernal fans, he is in this as I guess ostensibly the most famous person in the cast. <laughs> but he does play more of a recurring role rather than a main cast role. Mm-hmm. So the release of this was they release the first three episodes and then two every week. So at the point in which we're recording right now we have only seen up until episode seven of the 10 episodes. So there's still three more to go. I think what they're going to do is two more in this coming Thursday. And then the finale is the week after that. So this is about basically 20 years after a flu-like pandemic. Hold on. <laughs> just just wait. Don't don't tune out. Um, the difference between a flu-like pandemic in this book and ours is that 99% of the world's population in the book and in the show, uh, they are dead. So that leaves 1% of humans. And um, we are following Kirsten and the Traveling Symphony, which is like a music and drama troupe. Uh, they go from town to town around Lake Michigan, uh, which I think they call the wheel. They go from town to town and essentially perform Shakespeare and music. And suddenly their schedule is kind of disrupted by a man that calls himself the prophet. And that's like first layer of the onion explanation of the plot mm-hmm. beneath that the first thing that you watch the first episode it starts like the night that the pandemic begins and then it kind of jumps time depending on the episode essentially fresh after the pandemic has kind of seared its way through the earth and then like like we mentioned with kirsten and the traveling symphony 20 years after so when i saw the trailer for this i hadn't read the book Mm-hmm. And I saw the trailer and I was like, well, I'm probably going to watch this because it's Patrick Somerville. He worked on The Leftovers with Damon Lindelof, who is also one of my favorite showrunners. Um, he was also the showrunner for Made for Love. And mm. he he was also the showrunner for Maniac. But I like him as a showrunner. So for me, I was just like, this is probably going to be good. And then I saw that Hiro Mirai was directing the first episode and he's directed directing a couple more of the episodes throughout the series and i love hero Mirai as like his work on atlanta mm-hmm. for example so i was like this is probably going to be good so i read the book and the book ended up being one of my favorite reads of last year oh okay and i think it's one of my favorite reads about a post-apocalyptic world period mm-hmm. so the themes of the book really really spoke to me so you you could say that I have a little bit more of an emotional contextual understanding of what the show is about because of that. I've been watching this with my husband who did not read the book and he's finding it a little bit harder to get into than I am. But you don't have to read the book because it deviates from the book a lot. Mm-hmm. Like the main thing is like the night that the pandemic begins in the book, Kirsten and Jeevan, played by Himish Patel, they go their separate ways. But in the TV show, they kind of stick together uh, up until the point where they don't and we don't know why they don't. But then like as a series progresses, it deviates more and more from what happens in the book. So it doesn't really matter. But 
I want to ask your opinion about it as someone that also has not read the book. Mm -hmm. Where are you at and how are you feeling about it so far? Well, I'm caught up all through the latest episode, episode seven, and I like it a lot. I I will say, like, to be fair, I have read all the spoilers for, like, what Mm. happens in the book, as is Mm -hmm. my tendency. I like to go hard (laughs) on, like, Wikipedia pages and and summaries. Yeah. Um, So I kind of, like, have some of the context of, like, what happens uh, in the source material. But, yeah, like, I in the forums like whatever the subreddit like people do observe a lot that there are a lot of differences between the source Mm -hmm. material and the adaptation other complaints of course but also like people who say that the the show is better sometimes um Mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know i i like it i'm liking this a lot i didn't know if i would because of the i don't know just like the the state of mind that it would take to get into something like this at this point in time but no i think it's a really artful adaptation or like an artful example of like a some kind of like end of the world uh, apocalyptic work and it has a lot of emotional resonance that i'm really digging yeah i mean i was not one of those people when the pandemic started that was like i'm gonna watch contagion oh that was never me Mm -hmm. i don't think that'll ever be me uh, like a lot of people read a book like Severance as well, which is also oh, that's maybe my about- favorite, like a right a, so, end of the world type novel. Okay, cool. So I will read that next. But like for me, I really, really was allergic <laughs> to the concept of something that was similar to what we're going through. Obviously, this is very different mm-hmm. because civilization has ended. Civilization as we know it has yeah. ended mm-hmm. on Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. For those that don't know, I think it came as a surprise for me when I was reading the book where I was like, oh yeah, if everybody dies, there's no internet, there's no electricity, there's yeah. no running water. Like the, the reliance on human power is still so great. Yeah. It, yeah, like it, I, I, it took a while for me to wrap my head around that, which... I don't know what this says about me, <laughs> especially <laughs> when I was watching this and reading this as like Omicron was like rising back up again, uh, as this new variant was rising back up again. I d- I'm so sorry for how like dark this sounds, <laughs> but I was like, well, at least there's finality that to that. <laughs> mm. And there was like comfort in, not that I prefer that 99% of the world dies, but the fact that it was so this illness in the book is so quick. There's no incubation period. And like everybody like within catching it within 24 hours, you're dead. And there's just like, that's it. Not that there was a preference for that, but there was like, well, before you even know it, it's over, (laughs) which, you know, I'll I'll talk about that with my therapist, but um, (laughs) in the show, the fact that we meet Kirsten 20 years after as well, I think there's also this comfort in seeing humanity survive and persist through something as devastating as that and i think some critics have compared to compared like this story to not so much a post-apocalyptic apocalyptic story but more of a frontier story where people are traveling together to to new lands and forming new community there's a comfort in that because it kind of shows you that like oh there's there's a persistence there that existential fear that you might have about humanity being wiped out and then what that means it's kind of absolved um, and it's answered for you by that 20 20 year flash forward the main thing i think and i would agree with this that many critics have applauded this show for is the fact that it does show this apocalyptic event uh, and world as like in in the most gentle way that it possibly can a lot of it is thanks to the visuals so Hiro Mirai, he has a very particular style of like ultra wide 
like top down on a city. Like he, you see his work a lot on Atlanta with this, but also close ups of the characters and the way that he works with angles. Like he loves himself an upside down uh, or a camera lens looking up into a character's face. And then that the juxtaposition of both of these two things really makes it feel like you're in a larger world, but you're seeing it through an intimate lens. And not only that, like, just episode one, which I think is the most hardest pill to swallow in terms of, like, you know, seeing a pandemic unfold. Um, would you agree with that? I feel like it was, like, that versus, like, say, for example, episode three, where you see a little bit more of the pandemic unfolding. Episode one was a little bit tougher for me. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was I thought it was a great episode. It actually, like, hooked me in um, from yeah. the episode. It, yeah. There are, like so many parallels i think to what people may have experienced like in our contemporary times but but also like yeah there is a sort of security or or safety in the knowledge that we are still in a different context than what plays out on screen um yeah and i don't it was a really it was a really well done episode i thought yeah dude and it's like the way that they really showed the flash forwards of how a place looks like 20 years ahead yeah with the vegetation and the greenery creeping through yeah it really reminded me of annihilation did you ever watch annihilation Mm -mm. um but it's just like that that understanding of like nature and the world and vegetation and how beautiful it can be and how overwhelming it can be too like how it can take up a space just gorgeous like i love that part of it but it's also the way that they don't really show anybody like you know with post-apocalyptic thing they show like a bunch of people or like a bunch of bodies decaying or bleeding or like corpses around like you really don't see that like we're on episode seven and you really don't (laughs) see any of that Mm -hmm. which is like honestly mercy the themes of this i think are the things that really hold me because it isn't just about this terrible thing happened and here are a bunch of people and something bad happens to them along the way. It really isn't that there's like an emotional undercurrent that kind of like flows through it. But the thing that I like the most about it is the way that it tries to answer this existential question of like, what is important for humanity? Mm. And I don't know if this resonated with you at all because it was so prominent in the book that phrase um, that is painted on the side of the Traveling Symphonies caravan, which is survival is insufficient, that's like the North Star of the show. 20 years after devastation, they've still kind of figured out a way to spread the word of creativity and art and like how that brings us together as humans. Am I being too like misty eyed about it? <laughs> like, I don't know if like you got that too, but that this is what's speaking to me. No, I mean, I think that's like very clearly one of the big, you know, overall themes, like one of the episodes is named uh, survival is insufficient. And it's, I mean, like watching the the traveling symphony and the work they do in the way that the people in each settlement, like really welcome their arrival with each season um, or every year that they make this this sort of like a cycle throughout the region it it does like bring to mind it takes you back to the core of what differentiates like humans from you know animals or or whatever like like it's a large part of it is this element of storytelling yeah and how in the ancient world of course like going back thousands of years like millennia like it's People return time and time again to the fire, to sit around the fire, to exchange stories, to hear these tales and songs. And, yeah. you know, we had traveling bards all the way back to, I don't even know how how long ago we had them. Yeah. It is like somewhat 
comforting or I don't know, mm-hmm. like nice to see like in this world that they imagine uh, 20 years in the future after everything has ended, like it's still a core part of humanity. Um, and that's just like one of the, I guess, like indelible parts of what it means to be a living, you know, breathing person, like this need to not just find food and shelter and all those things that are like in the hierarchy of needs, like the, the most basic, but also people need hope. They need like to feel spiritually and emotionally fulfilled. They need something to look forward to. And that Mm -hmm. is what, I don't know, I guess like facilitates the survival of something like the, the traveling symphony, which like for all intents and purposes, you're like, okay, these guys probably can't fight except for, Kirsten they probably can't defend themselves if someone wanted to take them out but like in this like sort of almost like Eden like state at the end of the world like who would want to take them out because they they need them in some way except for of course the antagonist who very much wants to take all of them out shout out to Daniel Zavaso for playing such an eerie and also like empathy inducing (laughs) villain essentially yeah Um, this like cult leader with some kind of I don't know. It's it's hard to figure him out, but yeah. he's he's playing him like with all the mystery and menace, but also some kind of like history just, depth. Yeah, there's just there's just something deeply darkly wrong behind his eyes. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's super unsettling because he's really hot too. So you're just like, <laughs> fuck's sake, what's going on here? Um, no, I I completely agree, and I think not to kind of go a little bit too woo woo about it, but when. You know, there's this concept of like pre-pans and post-pans and the pre-pans mm. are the people that were born before the pandemic happened posts those that were born after. And Kirsten has a relationship with a character called Alex, who she, what, eight years, six years older than... Yeah, something like that. Something like that. And uh, she basically like, like within the Traveling Symphony, basically raised Alex. And they, they just have a really sweet like older sister slash like almost mother-like door-like mm-hmm. relationship with one another. And uh, she's explaining, like, Instagram and, like, Lyft or Mm. Uber to Alex because Alex doesn't know. Like, she's a post-band, so she doesn't know what the fuck that is. Yeah. And, like, hearing her explain it, you're just like, yeah, that is batshit. It is batshit that you can do that. But it does make me think, like, wouldn't that be nice if it didn't exist? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if we just kind of stripped it all back and there was, like, an element of of silence to the world and all I had to worry about is performing shakespeare and you know as a shakespeare head as we've established in the last episode that sounds lovely like to me which i think it's also naive because this show does a really good job of like hiding violence that is ever present and it's only in i think the like in episode seven you really see some of that violence happening but like yeah like you said like humanity is now brutish and the fact that these guys have separated themselves from that brutishness does give you hope do you have a favorite episode that you've seen so far? Maybe it's recency bias, but I really liked episode seven um, mm. that focuses on Frank, Jeevan's brother. And it's it's one of those episodes, uh, of which there are a few that are kind of like focused on a particular, uh, I guess, like ancillary character. And yeah. they sort of like take us back in time, what they were doing at the, the start of the pandemic mm-hmm. fills in a lot of the gaps in like this... Uh, mysterious past that we haven't seen yet through Kirsten's eyes. Uh, So it's one of those episodes. And I just found it really moving. Like, not only did it answer, you know, a lot of the questions, but it was really heartbreaking. Um, And this is one of like the better crafted episodes, I think, in terms of like uh, narrative and also the emotion it elicits. Yeah, just like this tragedy of how a family is formed and how it 
falls apart, uh, more or less. No, I agree with everything that you just said. The the relationship between Jeevan and Frank and mm. the way that like language is used to denote that intimacy that they have with one another like one of my favorite things that has, has started happening and this is like what you get when you have people of color that speak uh like different languages on screen is like it works as a great plot device or a, a great like way of showcasing almost like this shakespeare like quality of like two people on stage talking and someone in the background like listening or like hearing them but not understanding what's going on the way that they as brothers they speak hindi to each other and not wanting to have younger Kirsten listen or understand the truth of what's happening because as two adults they're trying to hide the horrible truth from the kid it's such a great device and i, I it really kind of yeah it's really it's really heartbreaking yeah. i think my i think episode 3 was is that probably, the one with uh, miranda that's the one with miranda yeah so <sighs> that love is, that one uh, too um yeah shout out to uh danielle deadweiler who plays miranda uh if you don't know her actually she played cuffy on the harder they fall uh, which was also a standout performance i would say in that film from her yeah this that episode is interesting because it really like the message of it really creeps up on you and the way that they did it to kind of denote what miranda like what miranda's deal is in terms of the way that she protects her art and the way that she protects her creativity from the rest of the world. Just really, really heartwarming and also heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And Gail Garcia Bernal is in that and he is, he's a prick, but he's so fucking charming. Yeah. Um, Which I guess is like, yeah, that's his whole deal. Yeah, that's, yeah. My short king. I love you forever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, that that episode is is insanely good. Yeah. I think the main critique that I have about the show is that some of the episodes are a bit uneven. Oh, um, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, so I think episode six is an example of a weaker episode, I would say, which is really, it's tough because so much happens in that episode. But I think that's, my my whole thing is that like they are trying to cram too much into one hour or what, however many minutes of that episode just to kind of obviously like push the story along so we kind of get somewhere but yeah pacing pacing is an issue on the episodes i don't like as much yeah and i'd say even like the weaker episodes i would still rate them as like decent like okay yeah, like above average yeah yeah Yeah. like a a baseline that's already like uh you know pretty good so yeah Yeah. it doesn't uh take away from my viewing experience at all but like i yeah i do understand like especially some of the pacing and like plot elements get get sort of crammed in together but yeah it's yeah. it's definitely worth watching i think it's honestly a real real self the performances are great you know shout out to my halt and catch fire hive i think Mackenzie davis is great i think matilda lawler is such a great child actress wonderful uh, yeah just you know now that Haley seinfeld has grown up or whatever i feel like <laughs> she's taken the female child actor crown from her I just want to give a huge shout out to Himesh Patel and Nabal Rizwan, who you might recognize from the first episode of Industry. Yeah. You watch Industry. Hell yeah. Um, shout out to just like two British Desi Kings, like doing it in America with fantastic American accents. Big up to you guys anyway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, re- I would really, really recommend this. It will surprise you. And Jenny, in a week of discourse... And so many films having so many opinions being made about them. <laughs> which one of them did you pick to watch this week? Uh, so I watched Don't Look Up, which is a film on Netflix. It's a sort of buzzy, I guess, to to put it kindly, a buzzy new <laughs> uh, a satirical film. Yeah. It is by Adam McKay. 
and also a story helped by David Sirota, who some people might know, some very online people might know as um, he was a journalist who was also a former speechwriter for Bernie Sanders. So mm. this is the duo that brought us Don't Look Up. Mm. So just a, a brief summary, Leo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence star as two astronomers who attempt to warn the governments of the U.S. and also the world at large uh, about this huge comet that is on track to collide with the Earth and more or less destroy human life in six months. Mm-hmm. But the president, like the White House, the government, they are pretty much indifferent until they need to try to uh, save the world from this because of, I don't know, like political spin. And then ultimately swayed by a big tech donors promises a profit that's all it takes to change their mind about destroying this comet. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the media is focused on trivial, lighthearted stories. The public is shown to be either helpless and or totally taken in by misinformation. So this whole thing is a pretty obvious and also like explicitly said um, by Adam McKay previously. Um, it's an analogy for climate change. Yes. <laughs> That's sort of the story in a nutshell. And there are... As we mentioned earlier in this episode, this this cast is truly like stars on stars on stars. Like it's yeah. stuffed to the gills with big names, including Meryl Streep, um, Rob Morgan, Jonah Hill, Timothy Chalamet, Kate Blanchett, Tyler Perry, Mark Rylance, uh, Melanie Linsky. Uh, just like uh, some of the names, some of the some of the just little casual, names. Casual, yeah. casual names. Yeah, yeah. So it's really, I think that is like one of the biggest draws is its star power, and then of course, like it's. You know, people are drawn, I think, maybe to the the message in some way or the urgency of this message. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say the most interesting thing about this film, I believe, is kind of the conversation surrounding it mm-hmm. rather than its actual contents, which are fine, I'll say. Like, not not bad, not not the best by any means, but, but mostly fine. Helen, yeah, what's your opinion, like, in brief on, like, the film itself? It was fine. <laughs> okay. We're in agreement on that then. I, it's just, it's funny because I actually wasn't going to watch it. I've got to say, because it's Adam McKay, I do like Adam McKay, but he is more of a true story guy in his recent works that tackle, you know, politically minded things. So like The Big Short and Vice being two of the films that I liked. But then I watched it and I actually didn't have that bad of a time. I kind and of so, enjoyed it. Yeah, I was yeah, I kind of enjoyed it most yeah. of the time. Yeah, and so then now I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with everybody? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so to get into that, this has received like very loudly, uh, very mixed critical reception. So it's currently at around 55% on Rotten Tomatoes, which as we know is not the ultimate arbiter of good or bad, but just like a helpful reference point. And a lot of the critique seems to land along, you know, different sort of lanes. So On the one hand, like, people say the film itself is, like, too heavy-handed, it's didactic, it's moralizing, it's like a lecture, it's condescending, it will do nothing to persuade anyone of anything regarding climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are all just, like, a a small sampling of, you know, some of the the criticism from from critics and writers and journalists. And it's – over the holidays, it kind of became – its own like mini discourse slash controversy cycle uh, related to this and the filmmaker's response. Um, so McKay and Sirota, they both basically replied 
in probably the worst fashion possible um, <laughs> on Twitter, uh, more or less accusing people who don't like this film of not understanding climate change mm-hmm. or not being interested in stopping climate change or not believing in climate change, like any of those kind of things, which of course is like not only like a terrible, stupid way to interpret criticism, um, but it's just like so obviously not true, yeah, <laughs> um, very bad yeah. faith. And just because a film has an important message or any message at all doesn't, you know, protect it from any kind of critique or make it a good movie uh, by any means. So they could have just like asked us, like, ask us how they should respond. We would have, yeah. anyone could tell them like, no, don't, don't tweet that way. Exactly. Like, I don't know. It, it's weird because it's obviously like both from the people receiving it and from the creators themselves. There's just like hasn't been enough thought gone into the emotional reason why A, the film was made. And B, the emotional reaction of watching the film and why people have repelled against it so much. Yeah. You know what I it's, mean? It's, it's, yeah, it's like pretty much like an overreaction on all parts, which yeah. is yeah. like a thing that we frequently come back to when we are tasked with interpreting many like discourse cycles. We, our yeah. response usually is like across the board, everyone needs to ch- just chill a little bit. Just everyone um, needs to calm the fuck down. Yeah. Ask yourself the question before you ask it to uh, Twitter timeline. I don't know. It's like, for me, the whole thing with this was there's an element of self-aggrandizing that's happening on on the side of the filmmakers. Totally. Which, yeah. which is totally fine. Like, I feel like filmmakers have a an overinflated sense of ego as one that's trying to be one. I get it. <laughs> like, you do think that your work is important slash should be important with a capital I. But I think for McKay, especially with recent years in the films that he's trying to produce, say, like post-Anchorman, he -hmm. is trying to do something a little bit more, here's one for the historical records. Yeah, like I'm a, you know, this is overtly political, like this is making a statement, this is... Like, gonna do something yeah like um, i'm i'm super frustrated by this i'm a rich white guy what can i do this is something that i can do i get it on the side of the viewers and the people and the reason why i think people had such a strong reaction against it has nothing to do with the film it has everything to do with the powerlessness of this moment that we're in whether it's the pandemic whether it's the impending climate change and that feeling of like the toothlessness of a film you know mm-hmm. um, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that the film is bad slash shouldn't be made i do think that everybody is overreacting because panic is one of the shades of emotions that we're all feeling right now and in the state of panic i think you watch a film like that and you're like all right so what now and it's like well <laughs> that's it you know that that it's just the film Right. Um, Like, I think what is one of the, not issues, but maybe the issue is is like both the filmmaker's response as well as some of the critiques of this coming from like the side of, oh, this is too didactic. Like, it's too condescending. Like, no one's going to like listen to this or like believe in climate change or take action, whatever. Um, They all actually fall on the same spectrum of, you know, the assumption that a work of art is a political action. Yes. Which, it can be certainly, but it's not. I'll say this: like most of the time, it isn't. I know, like especially as creative people, as artists, like everyone likes to believe that their work can make a capital D difference. You know, be some vector for like meaningful material, like significant change. But honestly, that is nine times out of ten, maybe nine point five times out of ten. Like that's that's just not going to happen. Hollywood and art and commercialized art, like they are not inherently. Um, works of 
you know, political action in and of themselves. Yeah. I wouldn't look to this film as like a, I don't know, like a comprehensive articulation of like a worldview of like progressive politics or right. whatever. Like it's, it's satire is pretty broad. It points out these different institutions that fail us, which of course are true. Like, government corporate media like all kinds of these uh tech like they they do fail us on a daily basis all the time especially with climate change but like the, i mean people have pointed out i'll say like socialists have pointed out yeah. like it it's still pretty like basic in terms of its worldview it's like very uh palatable it's very mainstream it's very focused on the individual still like there is um a thread i'll link by richard estes i'll i'll link this in our Substack. Um, saying that, you know, if they wanted to create a more biting, you know, allegory uh, and satire about climate change, they probably should have focused more on the corporate money that powers so much of how we respond to things and how governments respond to crises like this, instead of going for like the easy targets, like people who don't believe in like the truth or science or whatever, or yeah, it's just like it's it's not very new, it's not very unexpected. It's not like a huge indictment of a lot of the machinations that are actually behind the lack of urgency with which we are approaching crises yeah. like climate change. But also like I will say I don't really expect that much politically from this right. kind of work. And I'm going to say like maybe that's partly because especially in these last few years, what I feel like I've been shifting more towards um, mm. is an opinion or a belief that producers of art or writing or filmmaking, and I, like I would consider myself as like one of those people, like uh, someone who's interested in creative arts, both like emotionally and spiritually, but also like as a career. We're kind of fooling ourselves when we say that our creative output will lead to actually meaningful like material change for people like it, it our art will be the revolution or, yeah. or whatever um well, I, I don't know I, I think art and creativity especially those that are more politically minded whether it's the filmmaker intending to have a political message or not i think it's just confirmation bias and i also think that art and creativity does more on a personal individual yeah. level than it does on a collective yeah and what we're dealing with with climate change it's a collective problem it entails the entire world yes and yes. that's why it's hard to communicate communication is so hard to do with this one it's why for example before this film it's why it's so hard for people to understand and really warm up and be motivated by it because like the pandemic has shown us, if it doesn't individually affect us, we find it very hard. Well, I say we, I mean like <laughs> I think that's true. I think that's true. It, like we yeah. as like a human race. Yeah, have found it very hard to kind of understand collectivity and understand selflessness. And yeah, and so much of art is is so interior in terms of yeah. how like the uh, the subjectivity is 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 paramount and for that reason, it's so individualistic in a yeah. way. And ideally, it gets to the point where so many people individually are affected by it, that it becomes a collective issue. Like, say, for example, with Parasite, where people had like a class awakening <laughs> in some senses of the word. Yeah, it's tough. I, I do think that so much of art, in terms of what it's saying about our world, is more important in terms of like record keeping and in terms of mm -hmm. understanding what was going through the collective minds of a society or of an artist 
in a particularly turbulent time in history. Like, you know, we look back, we have retrospectives, we understand what's going on through the world, through the art that is being made. Um, it gives us a better understanding of context, but like, that's a, that's the case for like history as well. That's the case for political studies as well. We understand it. Do we ever learn from it? Uh, no. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I think that's the most depressing part of it. And I think yeah. that's that. I think that the repellence that this film has gotten has got a lot to do with that undercurrent of like everybody understanding that we, we never learn. Um, and then so what's the point of making these films, right? But I kind of feel like that question of like, do we need this now is such a pointless question. Um, right. And I think right. that this film was going to get made because the guy that made it has the means to do it. Do I think that this film shouldn't exist? No. <laughs> like, I think it's it's fine but i get what you mean about like yeah are we kidding ourselves yeah absolutely we're kidding ourselves but i think uh what we're kidding ourselves also is the fact that it's hard to work against a cycle that has been cycling year after year after year decade after decade hundreds of years after you know what i mean that's right i mean the thing that people say that art and art is like as a broad term including film including uh writing including whatever art is used for they say is like raising awareness um, right but we've already seen like the limits of where awareness goes like at this yeah. point everyone in the world is aware of climate change i think that's undeniable that's an undeniable fact yes um this film is centered so much on like believing scientists unfortunately a lot of people don't believe scientists but i think on climate change at least people can agree that like it's a problem but then like then what like what you're saying yeah. about art being such a it's so focused on the individual and like the response that it provokes from the individual is right but like they're like what people need for climate change like you're saying exactly like it doesn't it's not predicated on the individual being aware of yeah. xyz because we're yeah. already done that we're we're past yeah. that yeah. um what we need next is like uh, the political will uh on the behalf of like everyone who was elected to do this job like there are things that one hollywood production cannot really make happen at all yeah I, I will say that i thought the i mean we can get into the film a little bit more in a bit but i will say that the allegory of the comet is very smart because the problem with climate change not only just the fact that it's a collective issue that people don't seem to you know they're, they're not tapping into that they're not like connecting with it the main thing is the fact that there's a humans work with finality like we understand finality we might have a really shit thunderstorm that is you know might wipe out an x amount of population but if there's a sunny day after that where everything kind of goes back to normal for a little bit we put it out of our minds whereas you know with, with climate change the finality of it means it's absolutely too late it means we've all died and i think that's the part that we struggle with and i think the the use of the comet was smart but i mean i don't yeah. know people are like expecting too much of one film but also yeah. this film is like expecting too much of itself um yes. i guess is like the the crux of like this sort of, <laughs> yeah yeah misunderstanding or like talking yeah. past each other um yeah in regards to like just don't look up I don't know. I'm like admittedly kind of cynical on as someone who works in the creative field, as someone who would like to produce more art mm -hmm. and would like to do this um, for my sake, mostly for my sake. Um, yeah, I think that's what <laughs> it is at the end of the day for a lot of people. And I don't know what we're really expecting from individual works like this, but yeah. it's not most of the time it's not going to be able to fulfill that. And that's yeah. that's OK. Yeah, um, it, it goes back to that Huffington Post 
headline of that article i've forgotten who wrote it but the headline is literally i don't know how to make you care about other people um and i think this film thought maybe that might help maybe it will who fucking knows you know what i mean but i do think that it's being stifled not that the film is being stifled by any means but i think people are stifling themselves with this overreaction uh when it's actually just oh my god i'm so sorry but you're super frustrated with humanity not this film (laughs) um so if you um, if you like check out some of the not to use like the pejorative normie but if you check out some of the more normie reaction um a lot of (laughs) a lot of people really like this film like the the non-critics the non you know journalists or or literary or like media or whatever the film is really moving in some of the parts bro there were points where i like i actually had like tears in my eyes at some point um, me, me too. Well, maybe not yeah. tears, but close, close. I did feel like the, I did feel moved uh, unexpectedly. Yeah. Like, especially I'm thinking of the final dinner scene. Oh uh, my God. Yeah. Really a nice conclusion to this kind of whole yeah. hopeless situation in this film. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is because of the intimacy of it. Right. And I think. The tough part about this film, and I think the thing that I struggled with the most, and there have been rightful comparisons to Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. I feel like things about the world ending work so much better when you have an intimate space and you focus just on character play. And I think yeah. actually the most political works of art, whether it's film, TV, whatever it is, are character driven. Yeah. Um, because that's how we relate. Like, we yeah. are people relating to people on the screen. Exactly. Like, Leo DiCaprio's arc as Professor Mindy. Yeah, um, the, the Fauci-like really sp- character. Yeah, I really wish we spent a little bit more time on that. Because the the way that you see... If you were to pinpoint his emotional arc in the midst of all the fucking shit that's happening in the film, it's actually kind of beautiful, you mm-hmm. know? Like, it's somebody that gets lost in it and then finds his way back home. Um, yeah. The film yeah. approach that... You know, a little bit broadly is. I think is yeah. from a filmmaking point of view, I agree, like, this film was, like, a little bit bloated, a little bit broad at times. But, mm-hmm. yeah, like, that kind of arc, the relationships that were suggested uh, with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in at its best, this film, in some of those moments at least, it really actually got at this sense of uh, loss and mourning of what is going to be destroyed, like what it means to be human, what it means to live and what it means to inhabit, you know, the earth, this planet, it actually accomplished that, that sense of drawing out the humanity, especially at the end. And, and that is what I actually believe that films and art are good for. Like they are at their best when they are drawing out these shades of humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be accomplished with or without, you know, kind of avert, you know, moralizing or a political message or whatever. Like that is actually uh, the most effective means. I don't know. It, it maybe check out the film if you want. It it is long, but I was mostly entertained, and I thought yeah. it is better than what a lot of the uh, negative reaction is is painting it to be. Um, but yeah. also, of course, it's it's not gonna. <laughs> I, I I it remains to be seen, but I highly doubt it will end climate change. But you know, whatever. It's yeah. a fine. It's a fine film, and that's all it's I expect it to be. Yeah. This week, instead of our normal culture notes, um, we're doing a, a mini grab bag of sorts. So we're just gonna kind of briefly touch on a few of the things that we've been watching or that uh, listeners have wanted us to touch on. So. 
Pellin, why don't you kick us off with Pen15? One of our listeners called Hannah sent us an email asking about if we would ever talk about Pen15. And I am a long time Pen15 fan. Like from the very beginning, I've been watching these episodes. Pen15 is obviously, it's a half hour comedy um, on Hulu, created by Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle, who are real life best friends. And they created this comedy about the 13 year old versions of themselves. It's actually comedic genius. I think a lot of people balked at the fact that these two grown in their 30s actors were playing 13-year-old versions of themselves and the rest of the cast members being actual 13-year-olds. Just a genius show. I really have never seen anything quite like it with regards to coming of age, with regards to female coming of age stories that do not shy away from being gross. A huge shout out to Maya Erskine. I think she is one of the greatest female like comedic actors of our time the reason why i think um i'm just shouting this out in our in our grab bag is because it it has now unfortunately ended so there was a season one a season two part one and then season two part two aired recently and that's the end of it and i would really really highly recommend anybody that hasn't seen it to watch it if there's an episode that you start off with you don't really get into like i think jenny did um i would implore you to continue um because it is really like from episode to episode it does just get better the more you learn about the characters, the more you get comfortable with like the way that it's set up in terms of the casting. But yeah, this is this is one of the best things on TV in recent times for me. So, so you know, rest in peace, Pen15. And speaking of finales that will never come back again and that they're over, this week was, well, last week was actually also the final episode of Insecure. Did you watch it? Yeah, I've been uh, keeping up with Insecure basically the whole time and yeah i uh yeah. <laughs> i watched the finale and it was good i mean i think it answered everything it like wrapped everything up it sent off some characters who i think a lot of viewers like have grown very fond of spending time with mm. i think it gave them inappropriate send off yeah i don't know the the whole thing with insecure for me is just like it's a really pleasant half hour, you know, every Sunday for throughout throughout its run. Yeah. I loved it mostly for seeing how it portrayed like LA, how it showed yeah. different style, lifestyle, music, fashion, like just a really gorgeous work. Um, and I think the thing that people most value about it was really just like how it felt to spend time with friends. Uh, yeah. Yeah. every week and i think it accomplished that at the end i yeah. I think personally i would have preferred isa to just like do her own thing but i think the yeah. the end game <laughs> was always for this show to get her back with lawrence so whatever yeah. it's yeah. it's fine it's fine i think in terms of a season finale it was really well paced the format that they did of the different birthdays as like the the thing yeah. that skips time was actually was smart. really smart yeah I think Bolu Babalola wrote an article about how the whole point of the show was that love can be messy, whether it's friendship love or romantic love. And the fact that mm. that season finale really settled on that message, um, it can be messy, but it can be rewarding, um, is extremely true. And I, yeah, they did, they did a great job. Yeah. And speaking of recent things on screen, uh, mm-hmm. Helen, do you have a few words to say about the latest Matrix film? I do. I love it. Fuck off. <laughs> um, okay. It's been... Uh, there we go. Yeah. I mean, speaking of like things that have been having a bit of discourse or whatever, I think this has been pretty interesting. I actually had a really fun time with this. I do agree that it isn't as good as the first three, but I do think that it doesn't have to be. 
this was, it was just nice to have a bit of more like uh, hanging out with Neo and Trinity again. And so that was fun. So yeah, did you end up watching it? Yeah, no. No, and okay. I probably will not. Um, yeah, because you haven't seen anything on the, the first Matrix film, too. right? Yeah, and it was just like I was I was looking at those films on HBO Max, and I was like, this is going to be a journey if I want to get there. Yeah, it's and a bit of a doozy. Ultimately, I did not take that journey. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, speaking of journeys, what journeys have you been on over break? Like, what have you been watching? So I spent my break watching a lot of kind of trash TV, like a beautifully trash TV. So absolutely, baby. <laughs> So briefly, Emily in Paris, season two. I know we kind of panned this uh, in its earlier season on a different episode, uh, but... You did. I I still haven't watched it. (laughs) Oh, right. I forgot. Well, (laughs) season two is better. I'll say that. It's more like kind of self-aware on a meta level and like Mm. kind of poking fun at itself in a lot of places. And I don't know. It's kind of like a nice brainless little watch again. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of brainless, uh, Selling Sunset's sister series, Selling Tampa, was also released in December. And I got to say, this is better than Selling Sunset has been in recent seasons. Shit, I need to get into it then. Yeah, it's much more of the work-related drama uh, that we were kind of asking for instead of Mm. it being focused on, like, one personal quabble as Selling Sunset has been in its most recent season. So I'd say definitely give it a look. And finally, uh, the new Queer Eye season just dropped. And this show continues to be the biggest fucking mess in a lot of ways, Uh, (laughs) just like whatever it's trying to be as like a a bridge across the divide of america or whatever that's its like stance so but nevertheless uh gotta love bobby burke's uh renovation work on the show as always the star man we need more renovation work shows man i agree someone has to bimbo fi grand designs have you ever seen grand designs (laughs) yeah um we need more of that we need more like interior exterior design renovation shit because yeah i mean the stakes are high with that man like there's a lot of money in it and a lot can go wrong netflix speak chat to us babes come on so that's what i've been watching this break (laughs) nothing particularly you know intellectually stimulating but very satisfying for you know my regular sort of tv junk diet very necessary for that diet for sure sweet so that's it from us this week we are very happy to be back. And if you are watching anything that you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com. You can also at us or DM us at criticismisdead on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend about us if you feel so inclined. And uh, we will see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pen and Keskin Liu and Jenny Chijong. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Luke.